Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everyone, here today I am joined by Chris Berniski of Placeholder, a venture capital firm that invests in crypto assets. And of course, Chris has been a longtime friend of the firm and formerly at ARK Invest as well. And I'm also joined by Yassin, who is the analyst who covers crypto at ARK Invest today. Welcome guys to the podcast. Thanks, James. Thank you. All right, Chris, I think this is, uh, it's been more than a year since you started Placeholder. I thought this would be a great opportunity to do almost a retrospective of what's happened in the last year, both in terms of what you've done with the firm, with Joel, and what's happened in the crypto space over this very, very interesting and turbulent time. So maybe you can start off with, you know, what's that journey been like for you, branching out on your own, starting a venture firm, and, you know, that whole experience. I think many people would love to, to learn more about it. Sure. So, Placeholder was formally incorporated August 1st, 2017, actually the day that Bitcoin forked into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. We raised in the back half of 2017 our first fund, which is a venture fund. We raised $150 million from a large swath of institutional LPs, including fund of funds, venture capital firms, an endowment, and family offices. And we decided to raise a venture fund while most everyone was raising hedge funds at the time because for us, a venture fund aligns the interests of the investor directly with the entrepreneur. And something that people don't realize is a big difference between a venture fund and a hedge fund is a venture fund, we have committed capital. It means our LPs committed our investors, our limited partners, committed to provide us $150 million, but they didn't fund our bank account on day one. We make what are called capital calls, which is a percentage of the fund and deploy that capital over time. So that does a few things. One, in our investing style, it leads to time diversity as we deploy capital over a four-year period here initially. But then it also protects us from the volatility of the market in that we don't have to deal with redemptions. Our investors don't come back to us and say, hey, we actually want our money back. They committed for a 10-year period, and that allows us to really just focus on the entrepreneurs, to focus on the networks that we're supporting, and you know whether it be on the crypto economic front, the governance front, just or you know general problems that seed stage teams deal with, we're there to to work with our companies, and so that's an abbreviated version of our history. I'm happy to share learnings or or anything else from there. Yeah, I actually have a question. So. You have a venture style fund, which is like a over the life of you know ten years. But what's unique is that you're actually holding crypto assets, right? And they're not equities. So have you kind of thought about you know lockup periods? What makes like a successful investment in a crypto asset? How exactly are these investments structured? If you can speak more to to, to that idea. 
So what's invariant is our close working relationship with every team and, and knowing them on a personal basis. What changes is how we get exposure to the assets. So you pointed out we invest predominantly in crypto assets, whereas most VCs that you think of invest in equity in a private round, right, or private rounds. And then that equity, you later get an exit by a takeout or the company going public or whatever it may be. For us, we can invest pre-network launch, and there are a number of, of structures we can use to do that. Last year, SaaS were pop- popular. People have encountered problems with those. For us, if we're going to be investing in a team pre-network launch, we tend to create what's called a placeholder a management company or placeholder development company where the team can make claim to a future percent of the network and a minority percentage of the network, importantly. And then the enterprise value of that company is comprised of the claim on the future network. So to make this concrete, let's say we value a network at $25 million and the team is going to keep 20% of that network. They're going to keep 5 million in projected value. If that 5 million goes into the placeholder development company and we fund them with a million dollars just to build the software and get things off the ground, then we bought 20% of their 20% stake. So we actually bought 4% of the network. And now the key here is actually leaving the vast majority of the economics to the supply side, demand side, the actors that will actually come in and support the live crypto network. Really what we're doing is we're coming in and providing the investment capital to create the software in the first place. So that's pre-network launch. And then post-network launch, really when these assets are liquid, we've also participated there. Our most well-known investment would be Decred. And you know by number, we're about half and half pre-network launch and then liquid crypto assets. By volume, we've weighted a bit more towards the liquid crypto assets because you don't have to wait for rounds, right? You can buy as your conviction grows and the market is there, the market is liquid 24-7. And that's what makes us a little unique as, as a VC, right? It's this new model with a new asset class. And Chris, how much of the capital have you deployed this far? We have deployed just over 20% of the capital. Okay. Did you say the rest come online over time or you can actually go ahead and do it at your schedule? We make the choice. So we issue to our investors what are called capital calls. So, you know, we may issue a 5% capital call. And then so if an LP committed 10 million to us, they have to wire us $500,000. But we do that at a cadence and we really do that when we're going to be investing, you know, in a, a, a new network, be it public or private. Often when we do deals around the pre-network assets, we tend to lead those deals. We like structuring and, and setting the, ter- the terms and working with the team. And often those, you know, that can be one and a half or three million or a five million chunk investment. And so for those, traditionally, you have a capital call to fund those. And then with the liquid assets, it's kind of this balancing of, okay, how much capital do we have to deploy versus how much do we want to want? Are we going to want? And that can lead us to make capital calls proactively. That makes sense. What would you say is the primary thesis of placeholder? I mean, these various venture and hedge style funds for crypto assets got, you know, were launched over the last year. I think it'd be great to get here your view on your particular take on what you guys want to achieve. Sure. I would say to distill it down, crypto assets are a new way to organize and incentivize human activity of all kinds. And 
the first example we saw of this and a fantastically successful example thus far is Bitcoin organizing humans and capital around providing a very hard money. But that money is communicated and offered to the world through a information network. And that idea of using this information network to orchestrate other services, other digital services primarily, is what we're focused on. Now, the ways in which you can do this are vast, right? And this is where people will argue, you know, are these more like monies or are these more like equities? ARC put out in 2016, no, this is just a new asset class. And I stick to that because this is programmable value. We're going to have hybrid assets of all kinds, some which have characteristics like like equities, but are not totally an equity. We're going to have others which really just come to represent what I think of as a crypto commodity. You know, we can price, say, corn or copper or flour on these very liquid exchanges, and that helps the market around those commodities for a number of reasons. And I think we're going to see the same transition with things like cloud storage or bandwidth or transcoding capability. And so you'll have, you know, these connectivity markets or, or whatever it may be. So the broad thesis is organizing and incentivizing human activity. Governance within that is a very valuable component, but not the only component. And I would say right now, we are really focused on what are the different potential value capture models that are working within these networks. But but what does that mean exactly, a, a new asset class? Because I, I tend to side with the whole cryptocurrencies are money, not equity. And I, I know Brendan Bernstein kind of had, had a a good post on that where it's this idea of, yeah, you're creating this this mini economy and within that mini economy, you're creating an embedded economic unit uh, into the system that ultimately acts like money, right? In order to access that good, you use that service and in order to provide that service in return, you're you're getting that, that asset. And so what's the difference between that and just like, you know, a gift card to somewhere like Gap or a gift card to somewhere on Amazon. And so I think for me, something that's kind of been quite enlightening is is really making this distinction between value capture and value creation. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, in that a lot of these, you know, decentralized information networks, sure, you could be creating, you know, trillions of dollars of efficiencies. But the idea that like a file coin, for instance, might capture a lot of value at the at the token level seems to be something that I still can't grasp my head around. And things that are equities, like a discount token model, should just be securities, right? And so I, I'm kind of curious to get your take on on how that's just not programmable money or sure. Yeah. Well, so going back to the original paper that we put out with Coinbase when I was at Arc, there were these four fields that we looked at: crossing a bar of investability to sufficiently qualify as a new asset class, the political economic profile, which are things like governance, which are things like the supply curve, which are things like the use cases, all of which we could go into, which I think are quite different mm -hmm. from what we see. You know, what is the governance of a fiat money versus the governance of Bitcoin? What is the supply schedule of a typical money versus the supply schedule of Bitcoin? I think these things start to look very different, and the infrastructures that provision them look very different. And so and then so you've got investability, political economic profile, risk reward pro profile and then correlations. Correlations really start to reveal that this is an emerging asset class that is near zero correlated to anything else. So we could pick apart all of those things more, but I think it's 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 better time for people to just go and read 
use of time for people to go read the paper. What I would say is we kind of have two avenues we, we could go with this. We could say, hey, this is a new technology infrastructure that is creating this this vast diversity of assets that are all hybrid and some of them are totally new, some of them are 25% new, some of them are 50% new, whatever it may be. And so we could say that as an asset class is just a new thing that's going to be priced in slightly different ways and have different actors and all this other stuff. Or we can say, well, this is just a mechanism for programmable value. And some of those programmable values will become currencies or monies. Some of them will become commodities. Some of them will become securities. And they'll fit into all these different buckets. I'm kind of indifferent about where that goes. I think it's easier to communicate to people sort of the... Well, I think both can be valuable to communicate to people. But at least when I look at the data, this is looking like a new asset class to me. Okay. You know, there's no way to talk about crypto without talking about Bitcoin. And we've seen Bitcoin obviously have an enormous run up toward the end of last year. And this year, it's it's been frighteningly stable. Chris, how has your view on Bitcoin changed since you first started looking at it? And maybe over the last year, now that you've kind of committed full time to to manage to doing this, I guess. So we were having this conversation before the podcast started around how my views on Bitcoin have really not changed all that much over time. I think that the market or particularly maximalist perception of my views on Bitcoin has changed as I've gone from being the first buy side analyst to cover Bitcoin to now a VC that invests in a whole array. Maybe what is your view just to recap very quickly? Bullish. I think that Bitcoin is the biggest monetary policy coup that we've seen maybe in the the history of man i think that you know there's there's a number of interesting things about it all of which haven't changed right the sure from last year bitcoin was in a bull market to this year bitcoin's in a bear market that has changed but the underlying thesis has not and so what's the underlying thesis i think that as a store of value Bitcoin is probably the most perfectly architected system to store value over the long term. People will say, oh, it's too volatile. It's, it's you know, all these things too unpredictable to be a good store of value. But they're really focusing on the short term and sacrificing the long term realization of what's happening here. And the long term, the, the, the way in which Bitcoin is so different from pretty much any other asset that we've had is that new supply, the rate of new supply in, in inflation is mathematically metered and cut in half every four years. With most other asset class, or pretty much every single other asset that I can think of, you know, either that rate of supply and station inflation stays flat or marches up over time as it becomes more profitable to do so. And so Bitcoin is directly a, a reaction against the tendency to inflate asset supplies. And so that is what makes it, especially as we converge to the 21 million units, the hardest money that you could possibly think of. And a money, and I, I guess I should define the hardness of money, just being the difficulty required to create new units. And eventually it just becomes impossible to create new units because of the way the software works. And I would argue that this kind of perfect hardness, we could only create in a digital system, right? We couldn't create it in the physical world because we can always mine more. Or if we leave it to loose human discretion, you know, the the temptation to inflate always wins out over over early discipline. So I think from a store value perspective, that's certainly still intact. And the bear market has only reaffirmed that, right? There's been this flight, relative flight of safety to Bitcoin. We've seen the Bitcoin dominance index go up, all of those things. And then 
moving on from from store of value to really the broader conception of a money as store of value means of exchange and unit of account, I think Bitcoin is doing a really good job of that within the crypto ecosystem. And it's clearly the reserve asset of crypto. I think Ether has made inroads there, which is something we can talk about later. But, you know, Bitcoin kind of followed perfectly the idea of the commodity theory of money, where it was the first crypto asset that was ever produced. Each subsequent crypto asset that ever came to market was always priced in BTC. And so BTC has the most pairs, the most liquidity. And so you can buy pretty much any asset or anything in the crypto space using BTC. And that's a very intractable position, right? And so I think these, these two characteristics of set up to be a fantastic store of value that has just organically evolved to be the reserve asset of crypto have to make you, if you believe long term in the growth of crypto, you almost have to believe long term in the growth of Bitcoin as the reserve asset of crypto. It is a fantastic store of value. On the medium, ex- medium of exchange side, though, I, I think at least subjectively, I haven't seen a dramatic in- improvement in uptake. And of course, the nature of it being so deflationary, almost there is inherently some contradiction or some trade-off being the better you are at a store value, almost it is, it's harder for you to be the great medium of exchange. Are you one who believes that it could be fantastic at both or that it will probably do one better than the other? You know, when I was first starting this journey professionally in 2014 and 2015, I will say I was much more enthusiastic about stressing how Bitcoin would become a consumer medium of exchange, right? And remittances have been a buzzword within Bitcoin for as long as I can remember. And there is traction in these different fields. It's not, you know, this explosive consumer medium of exchange success that I think some people originally thought it would be. Because as you pointed out, there is a psychological burden to spending a disinflationary going on deflationary asset. I think instead what we're seeing is Bitcoin being used as a settlement currency. And so, you know, high value transactions. And actually, when you look at the transaction characteristics, which, you know, the data in and of itself is contentious. And if you look at coin metrics versus blockchain.info, you'll get, you get different metrics. But I think Bitcoin in 2018 is averaging something around 200, 215,000 transactions a day, over a billion dollars transacted on any average day. These are actually quite big numbers when you go back in time. I think in 2016, we averaged, this is going way back in my memory, but we averaged $160 million transacted a day. And so when you look at just each year and you pull back, you can see that we're still growing in this as a transactional medium at an exponential rate, but it's just transacting different kinds of value serving as a means of exchange for different services, more of them institutional or B2B or large settlement trades than previously thought. In your mind, if we fast forward 20 years and people are not using Bitcoin to buy coffee or pizza and whatnot, and it succeeds in other ways, does that count like, does Bitcoin need to succeed at at that fine grain of a retail level to succeed vis-a-vis its original mission? I don't think so, but there is a caveat. Bitcoin needs to succeed as a transactional medium of some kind in some fields. And the reason that's the case is actually it goes back to the supply curve, right? So 
early minting of Bitcoin is really a subsidy to incentivize the capital expenditure of the miners. But that subsidy is wasting away every four years, or it's cut in half every four years. And eventually, that subsidy becomes zero and needs to be entirely supplanted by transaction fees in order to incentivize the miners to properly secure the network. If you have zero transactions, you have zero dollars incentivizing the miners to secure the network, and the network needs to be secured to store the value in the first place. Gotcha. So it doesn't Um, have to succeed at everything, but it needs to succeed at something. Yes, it it, it needs to. and, And we're seeing, again, just directionally, if you just look at the numbers of Bitcoin, Bitcoin's network processing transactions and that uh, transaction values, and Yassine might have more numbers on this than I would, that is still up and to the right. Yeah. I I mean, at at the base layer, $1.3 trillion annualized is being transacted. And so many have kind of come to the agreement that the base layer of Bitcoin is used as a layer for large value transactions as a settlement layer. I personally think that SOV, MOE, and ultimately unit of account are, are, oh, are sorry, store, store of value and medium of exchange are, I think, inextricably linked. I think that medium of exchange is just store of value delayed into the future. Really? I'm, I haven't seen much gold transactions buying stuff. I mean, it's still working. Right. Uh, value. Absolutely, as a store of value. But in the purest, soundest form of money, a single asset is one that accomplishes all three. I think we're 10 years into, that's the thing that people don't realize is that like, we're 10 years into what's supposed to be a multi-decadal paradigm shift in how we define money. And so for the first time, if you actually look at what makes money sound and hard, it, beyond just, of course, having a predictable monetary supply, it's it's this idea of being durable, fungible, divisible, um, scarce, censorship resistant. And so for the first time, if you kind of look at why gold failed, it was because it didn't have some of the properties that make Bitcoin uh, the potential to be a, a single global monetary store of value that ultimately ends up becoming a medium of exchange. At this point, Bitcoin is not supposed to be a medium of exchange. I think that volatility will subside with with user ownership there there's this there's this idea and and if, if you're kind of on crypto twitter morad has this morad mamudov has this really interesting infographic on kind of the evolution of money where from like an i guess an austrian economics perspective it starts as a collectible goes on to a store of value then a medium of exchange then a unit of account that right now we expect bitcoin to have these medium of exchange properties when you know it's still an experiment in its very early stages we're we're not being patient enough Uh, there still needs to be a a lot of development at, at the base layer there still needs to be you know People, people still don't think of it as a store of value, let alone a medium exchange. I, I mean, I think at least a good number of people do treat it now as a store of value. As you like, correct the behavior of people holding it, I think is definitely indicative of that. But so you're saying you believe it can actually succeed at both objectives? Yes. I, 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 is there I, any precedent of any prior thing succeeding at both objectives while still not being, you know, an inflationary? A single asset, no, and and you can kind of take gold as as the example of that. But the problem with gold was that it didn't make sense for an individual to kind of store it under under their bed, right? So what happened was that it just got centralized inside of reserves until people until the government essentially banned our our ability to hold gold and then created certificates on top of gold and then just completely removed the gold standard. W- with Bitcoin, what's unique about it is that you're able to have 
true sovereign ownership of wealth. And all you need is really a private key. That, that you're able to kind of transact globally as a result makes it such that the ideal form of money is now possible. And I think that like the idea that as people, I don't necessarily think of Bitcoin as like some sort of investment opportunity. I think that we are seeing these gains just because this is a transformational shift in a new form of money, right? But as more real flows go into the ecosystem, you're going to have less disincentives to spend because there's only so much that people can, there's only so much wealth that people are going to be able to store. And so this idea that like we were scared of being the Bitcoin pizza guy. Yes, right now, 10 years in for sure. But if you think about, you know, 100, 200, 300 years down the line, and because I I think of this as a shift in time preference where we can't think of this as, as too short term in, in our aspirations. We have to think of this as, you know, a, again, a multi-decadal shift. And so if Bitcoin becomes a multi-trillion dollar asset class, then, you know, the volatility or the, the potential gains as a result will, will subside. And, and so the way that it becomes a medium exchange is not at the base layer. Yes, the base layer, I certainly agree, is a layer for large value settlement transactions, but very similar to kind of how the internet has evolved. Bitcoin as an infrastructure will involve several protocols layered on top of each other. And so the Lightning Network as a bidirectional payment channel for small transactions, for microtransactions, is a, is a step towards this idea of, of medium of exchange. So you mentioned volatility a few times, and I think volatility is a super interesting discussion Mm -hmm. in Bitcoin. And I have long ranted against the mainstream media who just constantly fixates on on Bitcoin's volatility, because when you look at it on a long-term scale, volatility is dropping precipitously over time. And actually, if you look at like 30-day vol right Right. now, it's like 2%. It's it's back down to some of its lowest levels ever. Bitcoin has lower volatility than the S&P 500. Well, well, there you go. Right. (laughs) And so I don't stay on top of these numbers day to day. (laughs) Yassine has taken my job there. But it is clear that over the long term, Bitcoin's volatility is dropping and that will continue to happen as the markets get more liquid and all of these other things. That said, I don't think, when just when you think about it mathematically, with no modulation to supply, I don't think that Bitcoin ever becomes as consistently low volatility as most means of exchange assets that people have gotten comfortable with using over the last few centuries. And so when I go back in gold's history, you know, gold really started to be used as a store of value upon which derivative means of exchange were means of exchange were created and those were paper, right? Originally paper backed by gold and then ultimately divorced from gold. But I think consistently at least in my opinion there are many ways to interpret history, but in my opinion I see Bitcoin is having a better chance at providing this base layer store of value upon which derivative values could be created. And that, in a way, even if some of its value grounding is from Bitcoin, it relieves the psychological anxiety of even having to think about spending Bitcoin. But it's also because we don't necessarily realize that the medium exchange that we use today loses purchasing power, right? I don't necessarily think that the ideal money is one that is not volatile. I think that it is one that retains purchasing power and in fact increases purchasing power over time. So I do agree with you that 
our current perception of what money is supposed to be is not what a, a Bitcoin as a medium of exchange would be. And so there perhaps that's a psychological barrier that no one is ever going to be able to overcome. But that's kind of something that, that we should at least, you know, consider. It's more a cultural shift than a technology shift. Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, Bitcoin obviously is a big topic, but there's a couple of thousand tokens and networks beneath that, uh, beneath Bitcoin that the kind of the uh, on coin market cap. Chris, your job is really at its core, evaluate all the teams working on all these other ideas using the idea of a blockchain to create some kind of new way of governing and altering and rewarding human behavior. A lot of these projects, you know, let's just say it, are just outright scams and make no sense. But a lot of them are are extremely well designed and well intended. Which of these have made the strongest impression on you? And maybe just in terms of real world traction, which have actually, you know, when we look at early internet, we're looking for signs that customers are using it and really loving it. And the metrics are compounding month to month. Which ones have displayed that characteristic in terms of gaining traction? So if we go back a little bit to our, to our investment thesis, as that will inform the things that we're interested in, we really raised on this idea that we've had different value creation frontiers within information technology that went from hardware to software to data. And what ends prior frontiers is standardization of the existing regime's golden goose, basically to drop costs around that that resource and allow creation on, on top. And so right now we're in the data regime. All the big companies, internet companies that ARC invests in are either data aggregators um, that, that provide access to proprietary data or create a proprietary service based on proprietary data. We see blockchains broadly as standard data layers that should put pressures long-term on the margins of data aggregators and unlock all of this building on top. And the building on top needs to come from developers. And we're so early right now, it's just developers, 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 right? And so we have started off really focused on developer-facing projects. So for example, Zeppelin is a team that we work with. Can Can you explain, yeah, can you explain what Zeppelin is? So Zeppelin has a long history in crypto. Actually, Manu, who's one of the founders, did proof of existence back in 2013, I think it was, which was the first sort of abstract use of Bitcoin's blockchain to to prove a piece of data that was not necessarily monetary related. But so go back in time, they really made a name for themselves as a top tier auditing firm in all of their audits of different smart contracts, they started to see repeated mistakes. And so they actually started to create smart contract libraries that they themselves had audited, right, where you can basically plug and play, okay, you need to do XYZ, here's the contract to actually do that, which we know works out the box, etc. So Open Zeppelin is a smart contract. Uh, it's basically a bunch of smart contract libraries that a lot of people have, have built on. And they are morphing this right now into Zeppelin OS, which is really just an operating system, just as there's iOS that developers can build on top of and takes care of a lot of the base layer things. And again, this fits in the broader progression of how developers develop, right? At first, you have to deal with the base hardware and all the mechanics it's kind of like, oh my God, why do I have to do all this? But that all gets abstracted over time. And Zeppelin is, we think, the highest quality team providing that service for developers. And their downloads are growing anywhere from 8 to 11% week over week, which is math- massive growth 
they're in the hundreds of thousands of downloads. One of their, from Consensus, there's a different framework called Truffle. I think there are over a million downloads. These are sizable amounts of developers that are coming into the space. And so I think that tools and networks that provide real resources to developers, Ethereum being another one, right? Why did Ethereum go nuts? Because it was easy to build on top of. People figured out you could raise capital on it. A lot of it was done irresponsibly, but it led to vast experimentation that sucked a lot more developers into the space and have stayed in the space. And, you know, maybe the majority of the projects are fool's errands, but we kind of knew that to begin with, right? It was a common narrative. 95% of what's coming out in 2017 is junk. And so we shouldn't be surprised in 2018 when 95% of the projects are failing, but instead look at the 5% that are working. So that's the developer side. On the sort of more user-facing side, I think the networks that will get traction first are actually in the financial stack. And this is financial services tends to be one of the earliest adopters of new technologies within these technological paradigms. And a blockchain is a natively financial technology, right? It's really good at securing and transferring assets. And so us being in New York, we have a competitive advantage, I would say, actually over Silicon Valley in terms of closeness and understanding of how the traditional financial system works. And with that understanding, the ability to re-architect around it, to actually get pragmatic solutions into market that don't piss off regulators, so on and so forth. And so I think examples there that are getting a lot of traction would be ZeroX, for example. ZeroX has amazing product market fit with developers, and the developers building things on top of ZeroX are now searching for product market fit with the end users. Something like Maker. What does ZeroX do? Sorry, so ZeroX, people call ZeroX a decentralized exchange. I actually think it's a misnomer. I think of ZeroX as settlement logic. Settlement logic that operates on top of the machinery of Ethereum and basically allows any trade right now of ERC-20s, but in the future it will be broader crypto assets, to settle without any centralized third party. And so that settlement logic is crucial. And when you look at a lot of our traditional asset classes, there's really one settling party, right? Because you don't want to mess that up. So this is something that Xerox is something that serves crypto itself. Mm-hmm. Are there examples of networks or tokens that serve external use cases outside of crypto? Not with great traction. And, and I- Bitcoin. I think, I mean, well, certainly Bitcoin, but I think that when you look at how the internet developed, right, a lot of the traction there was internal to the internet. And we've all seen those funny videos of, you know, some guy, 1995 CNBC, you know, being like, what are all you internet people doing running around in your circles with these fictitious things? There was such an interest article that I saw, sorry to interrupt, in 1995 that was published, which was around the idea of being able to buy books online as just being totally just blasphemous. And so kind of seeing that same narrative play out in crypto is something that I've seen that's quite fascinating. The same narrative is definitely playing out. And I think that given how new, given how experimental, it is actually most responsible for for most of these things to stay intra-crypto. We've all bought into taking the risk. And, you know, we know we're going to get burned. I've been burned multiple times. You saw me go through my hack in 2016. And so, you know, that's just part and parcel of the game. But 
by scaling with crypto itself, which I think we can all agree is growing exponentially wherever you look, by providing services within that growth economy, these systems will grow up and harden and scale and all of that. So a good example of this would be MakerDAO. So most people think of MakerDAO as a stable coin what system. What is a stable coin? So a stable coin is, is basically an asset that is pegged to some other asset, most frequently pegged to the dollar. So Tether Tether was was the first version of stable coin. There's really three kinds of stable coins. And, and the get, point of a stable coin is to, instead of Bitcoin, which has such huge volatility, you never know what price it is, this one actually has intuitive stable pricing. Yes, yes, exactly. Good summary, James. And so there are different kinds of stable coins, but MakerDAO basically has these smart contracts that allow you right now to deposit Ether and then take out loans against your Ether. Now, you your loans have to be 150% collateralized. So what that means is if I deposit 150 Ether, I can take out 100 Ether in loans. When I take that out in loans, those loans are given to me in DAI, which is their stable unit. I can then take that DAI and sell it to someone else and then have the Bitcoin or the cash or whatever it may be in hand to go and do whatever I want to do. That's a credit facility. They're creating, they're autonomously creating credit for the crypto ecosystem. And that is super powerful. And so right now, Maker has issued or out, currently outstanding their $70 million roughly in loans. And, you know, so someone might come and tell me, oh, there's only, you know, 20 users on this DAP today. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a Sunday and each one of them took out a $100,000 loan against a smart contract. Like, that's very cool. And so I think, you know, Maker is a good example of something that really makes sense intra crypto where adoption is up and to the right and it doesn't have to reach outside of crypto in order to eventually get to a massive scale if crypto itself gets to a massive scale you know a question i get asked a lot from from investors is kind of the regulatory side this is something that you know even if people who see the opportunity are concerned on how this could become you know a headwind or or, or a restraint how has the regulatory environment evolved in the last year or so, maybe in the US and elsewhere in the world? So has governments become more supportive, less supportive? What's the general vibe there? The general vibe is do no harm. But I think the downside to do no harm is that consistent uncertainty drives innovation elsewhere. And so you have to be a little more proactive than do no harm. I think you you know, you you have to provide guidance that intends to do no harm, but you have to provide that guidance in the first place. So this varies massively jurisdiction to jurisdiction. My expertise is in the US. And I think the biggest thing coming out from the SEC this year was actually Hinman's speech, where he said, these assets can become sufficiently decentralized such that they're no longer securities. And so if you look at Ethereum, which did an initial sale, which looked and felt and smelt a lot like a security, he seems to imply that it has become sufficiently decentralized now such that it no longer is a security. Why is it um, that if it becomes decentralized, it's not a security? It's the economic interest. It, it boils down to the economic interest of you know, is this is this a, a centralized third party? And there's the specific four parts of the Howey test. And one of those is really a third party, right? Who is going out 
and with their efforts earning investors a return. But in the case of something sufficiently decentralized, you know, take something like Decred. You've got your proof of work miners, you've got your ticket holders who are staking and actively participating in consensus and governance decisions around code upgrades. You've got the protocol developers, you've got all the third party application developers. Who's creating value in that scenario? Everyone's actually kind of creating value. So it doesn't um, smell like an equity anymore. Yeah. And so, and, and, and it's all active participation. I think a key for me is, you know, that in order to return, earn returns, you need to be active, right? You need to be an active supply sider of some form. You shouldn't be able to passively collect returns because if you can passively collect returns, that gives leverage to capital and it also starts to feel more and more like security. All of that said, while I think we've had positive developments, I think there are balls left to drop. And I think that we haven't seen, we've seen outright scams get targeted. We haven't seen a team that was in the gray that was somewhat reputable to figure out, you know, what are the current practices? And this is really their first broad sweep of crypto funds. And that in and of itself, I know Kellen, our CCO would kill me for saying this, but that's cool that the regulators are investigating this and they're learning about it because it shows that the regulators are have come to the realization, this isn't going away. We need to figure out how people are doing this so that we can put in place the best standards uh, to actually do it. Yeah, I'm certainly going to echo that just in terms of what I've seen in the last year and this shift in narrative from a regulatory standpoint of we're no longer being dismissive or this is a scam. It's like either how do we get a piece of the pie or how do we regulate this without stifling innovation? Regardless, there's definitely been more, definitely more talk as to, you know, being more involved in, 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 in paving this regulatory landscape. So I, I think it's, it's promising for the space. Chris, would you say the U.S. government as a whole has uh, done a good or poor job of uh, dealing with the space and everything that's happened? I think they've done a decent job. I, I, I think there's we don't give them enough credit, right? <laughs> and they they are civil servants. A lot of these people could go and make a lot more money in private industry than working for the government. And yes, there is the revolving door and all of that stuff. But this is really complicated stuff. It seems like they've been pretty thoughtful about it. Um, and yeah, they like I agree that they, they have been thoughtful. And if you think about a regulator's incentive structure, they're not incentivized to take any risk. And they're kind of being forced to take risk here. And they're doing it in a very methodical, as you just said, thoughtful way. And so I appreciate that. I think that, you know, some other jurisdictions have moved faster. That may ultimately be to their detriment, it may be to their success. It's too early to say. What I would point out broadly, though, is globally regulators are now holding each other in check because of this idea of regulatory arbitrage, right? If you're too stringent in one nation, where does the protocol operate out from? The protocol operates from wherever its nodes are placed, and the team can theoretically go anywhere. And so I think that regulators have come to the the, the realization that is there is this jurisdictional competition or regulatory arbitrage. And if you're not really thoughtful as a regulator, you're going to drive innovation elsewhere and that'll hurt your economy. Has any country emerged as the most pro-crypto country in terms of regulatory framework and attracted a disproportionate amount of interest? The answer well, may be no. Yeah, I think different 
other than the, the, the smaller ones, you know, sort of like Malta or some of these tinier states that are really aggressive about getting entrepreneurs to, to come to them. And because of their scale and their infrastructure, it's hard to just get critical mass. Aside from, from those guys making really valiant attempts, I think most nation states that I see are taking this, this sort of quasi optimistic measured approach. Switzerland, like if I were to think about countries that stick out as, as being helpful, it would be Switzerland, Japan, the US moderately so, Canada. But a lot of innovation is going on in the US. There's a lot of teams based in the US. And so we're not seeing like a Silicon Valley style movement where it's everyone- It's not a mass exodus. Great. No. Yeah. Interestingly, you also have some, some Latin American countries like yeah. Colombia. I know the president recently announced that he's going to cut taxes for a cryptocurrency and blockchain startups. So you have these kind of developing emerging countries that are, you know, seeing an opportunity to perhaps leapfrog over some of these more developed Absolutely. Um, in terms of just the regulatory havens. The great analogy there is Bitcoin and other crypto assets can do to financial infrastructure what cell phones did to telecom infrastructure, right? And you go to a lot of these developing nations, they don't have these ugly blights called telephone poles because they just put in cell towers. And I think we'll see a similar progression. And, and if you look at China, I mean, ARK knows this much better than I do. China is just stomping the US and most of the rest of the world in digital payments. And they've, they've totally leapfrogged a lot of our systems and they're better off for it. Yeah, we see that in digital payments. We see that food in food delivery. We see that in, in a ton of areas. Like one of the most surprising comments from me is like, why is Google trying to get back into China? It's not even to get some market share. It's to learn Chinese internet business models. Mm. So it's, it's, it's definitely the case that when you don't have certain things, you can be more innovative. Yeah, and it's the entrenched interests, right? Maybe a, a micro way to, to phrase it is when you hire someone, and you bring that person on or you start operations, it's harder to fire that person and wind down those operations. And or at least it takes active effort to do so. And so as we have put in all of these different pieces of infrastructure over time, we effectively have to fire all of those people to go and do something new. And that causes uproar, right? People don't like change for the most part. And so it's always a more lethargic process to have to combat change than just build on greenfield territory. Makes a lot of sense. Yassine, do you have any final questions for Chris before we wrap up? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you believe a year ago that you now no longer believe? Whether that be in the crypto space, whether that be in general, just because like you like you had said you were kind of a buy side analyst when the first covering bitcoin now you're you know deep in in the vc space so kind of an interesting take would be this is personal i guess a year ago i believed that i could make everyone in the crypto space happy by being very reasonable very open open to amending my thoughts based on rational argument. This seems to be more a commentary on Twitter. And it's just not possible, you know, and, and I, I think that takes just personal work. Because you're popular, Chris, um, that's why. <laughs> it just takes accepting that you're not going to make everyone happy. And even if your intentions are as good as they could possibly be, they're always going to be interpreted in a bunch of different ways. And so that's a personal reflection. 
I think in a technology reflection or crypto broadly, I'm trying to come up with negative ones because I think that's what you want. But I'm not, not necessarily. I'm I'm increasingly bullish with each passing month about crypto broadly. I think that so it's more the case that what you believed a year ago, you believe in more now. Yeah, I guess when I think about execution or what we see with with different teams across the the crypto space, I thought people would take. So I wrote a post recently on on productive capital versus investment capital in crypto networks. I thought people, and this was probably just my own naivete, thought people would take that investment capital and put incentive structures in place or time consistent monetary policies and really put it to use more quickly than they have. And instead, a lot of the investment capital has sat on ICO treasury balance sheets and kind of wasted away as these assets have have deflated. And I think that's that was a lost opportunity, right? More of those treasuries should have been diversified, better capital management plans should have been in place. Some people would, would say, and I think it's a reasonable thing to say, that amount of money never should have been raised in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I think that's those are learnings about just human tendencies that happen time and again. Okay, great. Chris, thank you so much for joining thank you, us Chris. today. Thanks, you guys. And best of luck with your fund. Thank you. And Chris, where can our listeners find you? I'm on Twitter at cberniski, and then Placeholder's website where we post all of our writings is placeholder.vc. Thank you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.